Rethinking healthcare takes more than disruption. It takes more than thought leaders. It takes change makers and doers. That's who we'll be speaking to on the Healthcare Rethink podcast, giving you, our dedicated listeners, a rich body of insights to make your own change. This is the Healthcare Rethink podcast. Yes, this is the Healthcare Rethink podcast. I am your host, Brian Urban, and today we have joining our show, the father of population health. That's right, Dr. David B. Nash of Jefferson College Population Health of Thomas Jefferson University. And today we're gonna be talking about, that's right, where is it? Uh, His newest book, that's right. I was just skimming through it this past week here. So excited to talk to you about this, Dr. Nash. You covered everything in this from, uh, I'm I'm talking population health, failures of leadership, culture in the US and the promises of technology that hopefully won't fail us, but maybe challenging to get through some adoption and some growth. Great. So, so excited to have you on the show. Well, thank you. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. I'm wearing my soccer shirt in uh, recognition of the World Cup yesterday, and uh, I was rooting for Argentina, so go messy and outstanding. Uh, thanks again for having me. Thanks for reading the book. and. Uh, been a labor of love uh, during the pandemic. Special thanks to my amazing co-author, Charles Wolforth, who's awesome. And I appreciate your interest in the book. Uh, the book has uh, sold out two printings and is back at the printer in suburban Maryland. So it's been an amazing, uh, since September 15th, been an amazing couple of months. And of course, we're donating every nickel of the proceeds back to the College of Population Health. So this is a win-win for everybody. I'm glad that you said that because that was one of the first things I was going to say about uh, really the humanitarian yeah. side of this and the giving side of it. And and even to the book's dedication to all of the healthcare workers yeah. across the world in the U.S. for giving so much. So amazing, uh, amazing. So let's, let's just get right into it. Uh, with all of our conversations on our show here, we'd love to get our guest uh, a little bit more familiar. Uh, with our audience and vice versa there. So uh, we, we have audience from across the whole healthcare ecosystem, tech, data, research, uh, and, and, and of course, uh, the actual actual workers in health systems uh, as well. So for, for you, can you please tell us who David Nash is before the MD, sure. how you got this, this great title of the population, uh, father, father of population right. health, and really just tell us how you Great. got here. Well, Brian, thanks so much. So a little bit of this is, if you would, um, you know, revenge of the nerds, I guess. But uh, so I've been a pretty focused individual. I've been on the faculty at Jefferson now for 32 years. I, I didn't train at Jefferson. I got recruited there 32 years ago next month. But uh, so before the MD, I was... Uh, I grew up on a suburban Long Island, New York. I went off to Vassar College. I was in the second fully co-educational class. So that's a story in and of itself in a polite way. Uh, In those days, applying to medical school. So I was born in 1955, the zenith year in history for the number of applications to American medical schools. So, So as a Zenith Boomer. I applied with more than any other group uh, to medical school. I was very lucky to get into a bunch of schools. Went to the 
University of Rochester School of Medicine after Vassar. Uh, but what was uh, out of the ordinary, not only going to Vassar, but I was an undergraduate economics major. So I did uh, graduate, uh, uh, fulfilled all the requirements uh, for Phi Beta Kappa undergraduate economics, and I did the minimum number of pre-medical courses to satisfy the application process. Was very lucky to be able to go to Rochester Top Ten Med School. Uh, the challenge when I got there was I didn't know like how to turn the microscope on. Other than that, it was just great. Uh, so year year one and two were a little bit of a problem for me. I barely passed. By the time I got to year three and four, it was totally different. Uh, also, while in high school, as we relate the story in the book, because it's a little out of the ordinary, while in high school, I found a mentor at the University of Pennsylvania uh, by the name of Samuel P. Martin, MD, uh, who was a giant and had created a, a special program nationally for physicians interested in leadership training. And to make a very long story short, this all coalesced around my getting accepted to the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program after residency training, wherein I then got an academic scholarship to go to Wharton. So to summarize, uh, Vassar, Rochester, residency, Wharton, nonstop. So um, unlike my grown millennial children, who all had a junior year abroad, traveled the world, did all of this great stuff. Uh, I did none of that. Uh, back then, <laughs> if you got into medical school, you got your sorry butt there as fast as possible because they were going to give your seat away. Uh, also, uh, great in medical school, I uh, met my future wife at a medical school convention. That's a separate story altogether. Wow. And uh, we've been married for uh, 42 years. So it's a great story. I'm incredibly grateful to be able to be at Jefferson for so long. Uh, and the book is the product of um, my friendship with Charles Woolforth, who I actually met pre-pandemic, a great writer, at a medical conference. And uh, we became fast pals. And uh, May, June of 20, so call it three or four months into the pandemic, I'm sitting home Zooming, trying to do my work, and I get a call from Charles, and punchline of that conversation was uh, his amazing insight that he could give a prose to, to my voice, and that together we could make a contribution to battling uh, co the COVID pandemic. So. I owe a lot to Charles, who basically said, we need to do this. And it was a very personal decision, uh, uh, Brian. Um, I, my wife and I, both doctors, as I noted, we have three children, one of whom is a frontline uh, physician attending hospitalist who was battling COVID uh, like everybody else at the bedside. So I thought if she could risk her life literally at the bedside, I can devote some time to writing a book about COVID. So that's how all this came full circle uh, uh, during 2020 and 2021. A great, great little journey. Great. And I think that gives our audience a good perspective on 
this is a, a part you of bet. your life and this is an output uh, within the story. And, and really you open up the book, I think in a great way. It's, it's kind of uh, a high up and then getting down into an investigation right. uh, around the pandemic globally and then in particular COVID-19, the impacts economically into our healthcare system infrastructure U.S. And you have probably so many great shout outs that we can give throughout the book. I'll start off with one um, big fan of, of, of former CEO and president of Jefferson Health, Dr. Stephen Glasgow. Yes. Uh, he had the forward to your book and he actually ended that forward with a really interesting perspective that I, I hope we can open up on and get a little bit more into. He had mentioned kind of building out the preparedness yeah. Uh, of of the future of healthcare and touching on some really big pillars. He mentioned social determinants of health. You've written several business case and studies on in terms of investment and addressing uh, predictive analytics, population health, of course, and payment models, medical education uh, in particular. That that stood out pretty pretty high for me in terms of really the medical humanities that's come through in a lot of the really successful. Right places and hospitals in the U.S. when dealing with the height of the pandemic. So in healthcare now, how do we prioritize all those things? Uh, SDUH, analytics, uh, pop yeah, health, wow. and uh, contracting models. But where do we start? Where do you put all your chips and uh, how do we start to shift the model of care? Maybe that's more yes, of a question. Well, let, let, let's try to unpack some of that. Let, let's start with Steve Clasco, and then we can try to unpack uh, your great question. Uh, so look, we uh, I owe a lot to uh, Steve Clasco. We were pals before he came to Jefferson. He was a transformative leader over eight years. We went from two or three hospitals to eighteen hospitals. We we uh, purchased a, a payer organization, health partners plan, and Medicaid managed care plan. We built an ACO. Uh, I mean, Steve was a totally transformative leader in every respect and super supportive of our College of Population Health. I mean, uh, I wish every university president and, and system president like Steve was, uh, you know, would be equally supportive. Without him, there would be no college. So he told everybody whenever he had a chance that our college was the first such school of its kind in the country. True, when we opened the doors in 2009, I mean, Brian, there wasn't a single textbook of population health at that time. So not only were we the first college, we had to write the first textbook. And, and I'm still the editor-in-chief of the only scholarly journal called the uh, Population Health Management. So, so Steve was ultra supportive of all of this. So now to try to unpack your question, look, here's, here, here it is in a nutshell. Um, I spent from 2009 to 2010, that's Obamacare, 2011, 2012, let's call it three or four years on our own campus every darn day trying to explain what's population health, why it's different from public health. And, uh, you know, it was a slugfest to build a brand new school from scratch, make it all online, asynchronous learning. Uh, I had never been a dean before. I was a med school department chair. So all of that's in the rearview mirror. What was really astounding was at the very beginning of the pandemic, let's call it March of 20, April, May, June, the summer of 20, 
I mean, I was home like lots of other very privileged folk doing my work. And it is fair to say that my email exploded globally of people coming to me saying, you know that population health stuff you've been talking about for 10 years? Uh, seems like it might be pretty important now. I mean, it implies essentially, that. yeah, that's what happened. And, you know, my wow. colleagues and I and our associate dean at the time and our faculty, it wasn't just me, certainly not. But our team had been focused on these issues literally for a decade. But to see them become, you know, front page news and shining a spotlight on the social determinants. And if you just look at Philadelphia, let me give you just a quick sort of vignette of why it was so the pathos of it all. So Philadelphia, home of five medical schools, including the two largest private med schools in the country, Jefferson and Drexel, our county, Philadelphia County, pre-COVID was the least healthy county in the state of Pennsylvania. So one more time, you know, five med schools, our county pre-COVID, the least healthy. So what's yeah. the cause? Well, you described a little bit of it. It's the social determinants or what Don Berwick calls the moral determinants and others call the drivers of health, whatever you want to call it. It has nothing to do with Jefferson or Temple or Penn or anything. It has all to do with crime, poverty, racism, lack of education, all the things that America doesn't like to talk about. Hungry children. I mean, so all of that existed. And COVID was essentially a one-two knockout punch to a town where one out of four people lives in poverty. What did people think was going to happen? No primary care doctors. Super subspecialists at most of the medical schools. And look, I'm inside the belly of the beast and have been for more than three decades. I get it. So Philadelphia is a poster child for what the heck went wrong. And yeah. the book, uh, How COVID Crashed the System, is all about, well, um, what are we going to do now? You know, <laughs> uh, I mean, the first half of the book is uh, Johnny Downer, you know. Uh, poverty, crime, mm -hmm. racism, misguided education, misaligned incentives. That's why the plane crashed, if you would. And, you know, Charles, my co-author and I, we're the National Transportation Safety Board investigators. We have those black baseball hats on. Everybody has seen them. And we're crawling mm -hmm. around the smoldering wreckage at the airport. And, you know, there's still smoke and there's bodies everywhere. We're searching for the black box. But here's the punchline, Brian, as you well know, we knew exactly what was in that darn black box, right? All those yeah. social determinants, yeah. the poverty, the racism, the disconnection, the no primary care doctors, the misalignment. Oh, and then finally, American culture, which we describe in detail in the book, three themes very quickly. American individualism, we are going to figure this out our own way, don't worry. American exceptionalism, who cares what's happening anywhere else? And American federalism, where the president at the time said, hey, all you governors, you're on your own. Good luck. So, oh. you know, wow. Oh.
Yeah. And I love that you went into how American culture, uh, United States uh, American culture, had created this vulnerability. And, uh, it, and it, it challenged us. It highlighted a lot of uh, access to care, uh, health equity gaps across the country. You and you, you actually mentioned, you mentioned something really interesting going into uh, kind of the, the payvider side of your book here. And I want to move geographically west, Midwest <laughs> specifically. So uh, at, at the height of the pandemic, there was about 11% of the deaths of COVID-19 attributed to the African-American uh, African American right. race. And I think it was interesting, you mentioned Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. Uh, quick shout out to the recently named CEO, Omar Latif. But you had, you had interviewed Dr. Yes, Ansel. Yes, David Ansel, one of my heroes. About, yes. Yeah, and there's uh, such an awesome excerpts from there. You, you talked about uh, how there was community less as a part of their equity strategy. And they accepted so many transfers yeah. from different hospitals, safety net hospitals around the area and, and, and further out outside the time zone. And they took a loss yeah. in terms of reimbursement and the cost of care they hit. But Dr. Ansel mentioned how many lives yeah. that they saved. And that echoed, I think, greatly throughout the healthcare economy and, and, and through other partners in the area. So. I want to talk about your conversation with with Dr. Sure. Ansel. So, first of all, very cool guy, uh, and um, the insights that he was sharing. Uh, can Can you talk a little bit about maybe what that's done as a positive ripple yeah. effect in healthcare? So let Let's set the stage, and thanks for mentioning David Ansel and Omar Latif, two amazing doctors. By the way, you know Omar Latif is a really young guy, super dynamic, of color. And David Ansel is older than yours truly, which is you know pretty awesome. Uh, but Ansel's 2017 New York Times bestseller, The Death Gap, was all about the social determinants in Chicago and why if you lived in certain neighborhoods in Chicago, your life expectancy was two thirds that of folks born in different zip codes. So Ansel was talking about zip code as destiny, zip code more important than your genetic code, way before it was popular. We had David Ansel come to Jefferson during one of our annual population health colloquia to discuss his book, The Death Gap. I had the privilege of meeting Omar Latif because he was a mentee of Steve Clasco. So Omar came to our campus with his leadership team. So Rush, had a decades-long commitment to the neighborhood, hiring people from the hood, working with companies. The board of trustees of Rush was committed to tackling the social determinants before it was popular and way before the pandemic of March of 20. So they're not a Johnny-come-lately to the story. They could serve as a great role model for organizations like the 155 academic medical centers in the United States. And Omar described how important his personal role is and his incentive compensation tied to measures of improvement of the health of the population. So one more time, let's make sure we sort of hammer this home because I believe so much of this challenge could be certainly ameliorated by realigning the economic incentive. 
incentives to actually improve health. You know, Brian, we've lost our true north. And the way to get back onto the compass of the true north, I believe one definitely important way is to realign the economic incentives of the most senior leaders so that they're held accountable for improving health, reducing disparities, reducing inequality. If they were economically rewarded, like Omar Latif and others, to improve health in the community, uh, that would go a long way. It's not the only answer, but it's a big part of it. And in the forward to our book, Steve Clasco talks about a very similar strategy. And we didn't invent this, and David Ansel and Omar Latif didn't invent it, but you got to give them credit for operationalizing this in some pretty tough, very deprived communities of color, poverty, lack of education, crime, and Chicago, of course, another poster child for what went wrong and what went right during the pandemic. I love that. That's in the meat of the book. It actually provides a really nice transition, too. So we're talking about very dense, urban, uh, African-American right. uh, 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 population right. inside Chicago. And uh, you mentioned community yeah. health. So actually, I'm going to take us back to the East Coast time zone here. We're going to go to the center of Pennsylvania between the both of us yeah. here. Uh, you talked to Dr. Ryu in terms of community health, and he made a really interesting comment about Geisinger Health System being at the root of communities. Right. And he talked about how Geisinger was uh, first community hospitals really so close to their patients because they wanted to have convenience and access and be a part of the culture of yes. the community. So Geisinger was an amazing player in terms of creating a blueprint for a pivot model uh, at that time in the height of the pandemic and, and even going through into 2021. But uh, a term of a blueprint for better health system going forward. Right. So Geisinger get from in Danville and Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine, where I have the privilege of being a board member, is in Scranton. So Danville, Scranton, 75 miles. So Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine, GCSOM, is an amazing medical school uh, where uh, it's unique, in fact, in the country, where more than half of the students are the first family members in their family to even go to college, let alone medical. So they're all about service to the community, which, of course, yeah. is uh, not shared typically by most allopathic medical schools in the country. That's one piece. Uh, Dr. Jaywan Ru, the CEO of the entire enterprise, uh, who came from the Humana Corporation, where he was a senior national medical director, where I first met him when I was a board member for a decade at Humana, so it's all interconnected. Jaywan is a transformative leader, like Steve Clasco. And Geisinger is a fully integrated provider and payer. They have their own health plan, as most folks know. They are considered one of the best models of a community-based tertiary delivery system and connected directly to their own uh, health plan. What does all this mean? They have every economic incentive to keep people healthy. As a matter of fact, I, and I was just in Scranton one week ago for the med school board meeting and a meeting of the Geisinger Fiduciary Board. 
it's an amazing group of people, a real privilege to be a part of this, uh, Gail Walensky, Tom Lee, and other big shots like that. But the punchline is, you know, Geisinger has every economic incentive to do basic stuff, like stay out of the damn hospital. Let me treat your heart failure at home. Well, yeah. we can't do that That's in true. Philadelphia unless you have, you're at economic risk for keeping people healthy. Everything about American healthcare is get in, utilize the services, we'll handle this problem at this time, and we're going to get paid for doing it. So if you get paid for doing more and not thinking about the true north of improving health, well, we're going to do more, and we're darn good at doing more. Uh, and then finally, GCSOM is sort of like, if you would, AAA ball to train the residents who will then graduate and go to work inside the Geisinger system. It's very analogous to the Bernard Tyson School of Medicine, of course, at Kaiser Permanente, which took, you know, 75 years, if you would, to build and open because Kaiser kept saying, uh, we don't have the right kind of doctor to work in our kind of system. Well, duh. So they had to build their own med school to create the doctor of the future. Look, I'm not saying that every med school should look like Geisinger and, and Bernie Tyson. Certainly not. But there's a lot we could learn from, are we training the right doctor, nurse, pharmacist, social worker for the future? I would argue there's a long way to go here. A lot of opportunity for improvement. Let's start with quality and safety, uh, human factors engineering, epidemiology, uh, understanding the social determinants mean, all of that stuff. Uh, but yeah. educators will push back on me and they have face-to-face -to, -face to say, well, what would you like us to take out of the curriculum? So Brian, here's the model. American medical education, nursing education, all the rest, it's like a barge in the river. And medical education's weighted down by lots of stuff. And you can't put more stuff mm. on the barge unless you take stuff off the barge. So mm. I don't believe in that description, but that is the reality. So to pass an LCME accreditation visit, you gotta have certain stuff on the barge. My view would be sink the damn thing and start over. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's not a widely held view. You know, what could I tell you? Uh, but we knew after those. 32 years, I, I'm not going to stop talking about what I care so deeply about. Uh, let's look at the epidemiology today. So here we are, right before the holidays, amazing 2022. We've been at it for almost three years, right? Crazy. So in America today, the number one cause of death among adults is still heart disease. Number two is cancer. Number three is COVID, and number four is preventable medical mistakes. So heart disease, yeah. cancer, COVID, preventable medical mistakes. My question mm -hmm. then remains, are we training the right team with the right skills to tackle the epidemiology that we're faced with? That's my question. And we need those diverse views and we need those hard pressing questions. So obviously I'm on your side. We got to keep pushing and challenging Sasquatch yes. and moving forward. So you mentioned one thing in terms of the social determinants of health. So how important will it be 
to provide physicians of the future information that's happening outside the clinic. Great. All right. So let, it's a great question. There's I have two responses, a private sector one and a public sector one. Let's do the private sector first. So it's already happening. Companies like City Block Health and um, Absolute Care, One Medical, uh, Oak Street, right? So these are mostly private equity-backed disruptive models of primary care where the social determinants are part of the everyday work that these organizations are all about. Uh, so let's see how they do. I mean, it's a, a city block in particular in our market in New York and elsewhere is all about treating folks who, when I was training, impossible to take care of these people because they're so poor, they're never going to come back, they're poor historians, they're non-compliant. Well, of course, that was sort of a racist approach, but accepted by everybody, including me, because that was what the training model was like. Instead, their model is we're going to shower and surround these people with services because that's what's determining their lack of health. That's a private sector response. Public sector response, what's the research show? So the research evidence is fascinating. If you give doctors, nurses, and pharmacists tools to attack the social determinants, guess what? You reduce burnout. That's fantastic. Yeah. So it's not like getting a muffin when you walk into work, you know, or a yoga mat, you know, I want to hear my yeah, hair out. Yeah. They don't need a muffin or a yoga mat. I mean, it might be nice. What they need is give me a tool. So when this patient's in front of me and I say, what's in your refrigerator? And they say it's empty. Then I could write a prescription for food, for transportation, for legal help, for mental health services. That reduces my burnout as a primary care doctor. That's pretty powerful stuff. So I think there's a private sector approach, there's a public sector approach, but you got to build this into the curriculum. You know, look, Mia Culpa, I've been a primary care doctor for 35 years. I finally stopped practicing in March of 2020 because it's a young person's game. But I, I don't think, honestly, I ever asked a patient what's in your refrigerator. My doctor daughter, this is a part, a core part of her training. Um, it's a totally different world, appropriately so. I'm not saying one is totally wrong or totally right. But look, we got to keep up with the times. It's the 21st century. I've always seen doctors as social activists. That's really the core issue here. And there's lots of folks who came before me who articulated this model, famous people, Fitzhugh Mullen and others, Jack. Uh, I mean, there's a whole bunch of folks. Um, we've lost that in medicine. So if doctors can't be activists to improve health, well, you know, that's part of what we have a sworn oath to do. So that's why training a different kind of doctor, nurse, pharmacist for the future is a big part of what I've spent 32 years trying to do at Jefferson. And I love that response. You gave me both the private side, uh, the care side, and then kind of a little bit of part of your journey yeah. uh, comparison to your daughters, which is an excellent kind of evolution of of kind of where we need to be yes. going. And 
you took us in that direction a little bit later in your book. I believe you're quoting a New York Times article when you had mentioned about 45% of hospitals in the U.S. had big time issues with actually matching identities yeah. of patients yes. when moving them across care platforms, yes. getting them transferred, uh, et cetera. So many other um, things there. So that kind of goes back to, to data sharing yes. in a way and also data maintenance too. So uh, as, as we look into the future, how critical is that going to be? Is hospitals working together yeah, well, and health plans working together? Well, look, it, it's not as easy as just, you know, implementing Epic or Cerner, that's for sure. We've learned that that's a baby first step in my generation. We're, we're the first ones to have, you know, experienced this. Uh, my daughter's doctor generation is much more fluent with all of this. But you are right, Brian. Just two months ago, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, right, Anchet, there's national law now to find a way to make these systems talk to each other. Um, I think we're a long ways away from seeing that operationalized, but hey, I'm all for it for sure. Look, Philadelphia, Chicago, we couldn't tell you who was vaccinated and who wasn't. We couldn't tell you who was in which hospital and who was in the other hospital. But back to Omar Latif, he talked all about accepting these terribly sick transfers from rich hospitals of poor people who they knew weren't going to pay. So they went to rush, you know, crazy. Uh, but yeah. if we could really improve the interconnectivity, and there's lots of great companies, both private and public, working on this. Uh, it makes for a very exciting future. It will be critically important in the next pandemic that we have the capability to make those connections. Uh, I sure hope all those smart software writers and policymakers are working to do it. As best as I could tell, major national leaders, David Blumenthal among them, articulating where O-N-C-H-I-T has got to go. I have to hope we're in the right direction. Yeah, I, I, I do as well. I, I, I feel that and I hope that because health equity and, and, uh, and, and uh, disparities by right. race is at top of mind and coming out of every CEO's mouth, but I hope it gets backed up. I hope it gets backed up. And, and, and speaking of the future, uh, looking ahead here, I want to bring us to a compelling close, Dr. Nash, because this has been such a wonderful conversation. I feel a part two episode coming on that might involve some policy yeah conversation as well. But what I would say the top three things, uh, I guess that for me, what what would um, what would you break down for the US healthcare system or healthcare economy across wow. the board that we'd want to consider in preparing for the next yeah, pandemic, the next economic pandemic? Yeah, well, you know, uh, there's the, yeah, a great question. <laughs> so um, there's no future in predicting the future, I'll, I'll tell you that. Uh, but let me take a stab at it, at least based on two years that Charles and I devoted to how COVID crashed the system. Uh, in no particular order, I think there's certainly three things we could start doing You know, after the holidays. One would be to realign the economic incentives and tie compensation for the whole system to improving health. And we could do that in any number of ways, some of which we talked about already. But 
realign economic incentive, uh, build new relationships between payers and providers. I mean, the kind of antagonism that's existed in Philadelphia is similar in many big cities between payers and providers. Put that aside, be like Arthur Brooks has counseled in his new book, Love Your Enemy, you know, uh, create the payvider models. The one is realign incentives. Two is create these new collaborative models. Certainly, two A might be get the computers to talk to each other to create these models. And three, change undergraduate and graduate medical education to include all of these issues and build a cadre of faculty and scholarship in these fields to attract more young people who care about these issues. Uh, I'm not saying stop training every cardiologist and other allergists, but America needs a primary care strategy. We're going to need one for the next pandemic. That was pretty clear in our city. Uh, so a whole new strategy as it relates to education for all health professions for the future. If you want to call it the Flexner 2.0 or 3.0, that's okay with me. But I'm all about building a different kind of doctor for the future. And some good places to look might include Bernard Tyson on the West Coast and GCSOM on the East Coast. We got our three. That's what I was hoping to hit. So it's align economic incentives, support the payvider pay model going right. forward and start to evolve the education for physicians of the future. Uh, whether that includes uh, medical humanities, it includes SDOH, everything that we've seen come from the, uh, the COVID-19 exactly right. in the world. But this has been amazing. And uh, if you haven't read this, uh, we've talked about it the whole time. It's uh, How COVID Crashed the System by Dr. David B. Nash. Thank you so much for joining our little show. Great. And for more experts and insights, please visit finthrive.com. Thanks so much.